the series we're in right now, if you're just joining us, we're in the second week of the series called The Pastor is Dead, Now What? And uh, I think we could rename that and say The Pastor is Dead, Uh Uh-Oh, because now the intern's up here. (laughs) And maybe next week will be The the Intern is Dead, Woohoo! we get the pastor back. (laughs) So we're looking in this series about what happens when the pastor dies. What happens when when the cornerstone of our faith maybe is no longer there. And maybe it's not just the pastor, but maybe it's a worship leader. Maybe it's someone outside of the church staff. Maybe it's a friend uh, who is strong in our faith that we depended on. But what happens when these people are no longer there and we can't depend on them for our faith anymore? And the, the point is not to take responsibility away from anyone else or to take it away from the church and say that the church can get away with whatever they want. But the point is that we're now looking at our own faith and what responsibility do we have to keep growing, to go from, from not just the sermon and not just worship, but what responsibility do we have throughout the week to continue growing in our faith. And last week we talked about prayer and how we need to keep praying and keep our, our weeks and our lives and every moment in prayer, and we need to give it to God, and that when God, when we pray, God works in our lives, and I absolutely believe uh, that that's true, and I hope that God is showing up in that way when you pray. Uh, Today, we're talking about accountability, and and a while ago, a couple weeks ago, John and I were talking about this series, and we were thinking, oh, what else could we bring up, and I said accountability, and at that time, it sounded pretty cool, and then as I started preparing for the sermon, I was thinking, I don't know if I like that too much, because this idea of accountability, we don't really see this in the Bible like we do today. We don't really see accountability groups. We don't see uh, accountability partners. There's no biblical model for accountability uh, like, like we see it today. And when I was thinking about accountability this week, uh, it really came up with uh, my friend Mitch and my friend Mitch, he's a friend from school, and I got to see him this week. Uh, he'd been studying abroad uh, last, last spring, and so I finally got a chance to see him and catch up with him and say, hey, what's going on in your life? And uh, the cool thing about Mitch is that he's been there through my college years, uh, through the last couple of years. And I remember back when I first, when I first met Mitch, uh, we lived together on the same hall uh, our freshman year, and we met. We met the, you know, there's that like three-week period where in college everyone's kind of meeting each other. All the freshmen are meeting each other, and you get everyone's numbers and their names. And about three weeks later, you forget everyone because you met too many people, and you don't really, you're like, I don't hang out with them. I don't think they're that cool anymore. (laughs) Um, Mitch is one of those people that kind of stuck around, and he became one of my closest friends very, very quickly. Uh, And what I remember most about Mitch, our first year of school, uh, we were both biblical studies majors. And so we're both taking this intro-level Bible class called Exodus Deuteronomy, and it's basically a, a kind of a survey of the Old Testament and, and what are the foundations of Scripture and, and where do we come from that. And I remember, Mitch, we were in two, the same class taught by two different professors, and so you take two different looks at Exodus and Deuteronomy, and we would come together and we would talk about it. And when we talked about it, there was something about the way that Mitch talked about it that was different. And I remember he would talk about it, and it was really real to him in a way that it wasn't for me. 
And it was so different because he would read it and he would write about it and he would talk about it like something was different. And when there was something that was different between what he read and what he wrote and what he learned about this Bible thing, and when there's some, a difference between that and what he saw in his life, it, it challenged him, it troubled him, it would keep him up at night. And he would come to me the next morning and say, this passage, this passage haunted me because it doesn't make sense in my life. And I don't live it out. And when I would hear that, I would think, man, I don't think that's ever happened to me. I don't think I read that way. I don't think I look at scripture that way. And sure, I could take a test and I could write a paper and do well on it. And and I might even do better than Mitch. But there's something different about the way that Mitch read the Bible. About the way that his faith was so real to him and God was so real to him. And something different between Mitch and me. And I wanted to be like Mitch because what I saw was incredible. I think this idea of accountability, we, too often we just say, okay, when we want to be accountable, we need an, an accountability partner and we need a group that we meet with once a week for an hour to talk about our sins and our struggles and this and that. And that's not bad to have that. But I think this accountability has to come from more than just once a week for an hour. And it has to come from the relationships that we have and how we live our lives. And that when we live our lives, that we're pushing those in our lives around us. We're pushing them to new levels. And those people in our lives, we need to be choosing people to be in these relationships where they will push us as well. And for me, Mitch was that person who would push me to a new level And he would make me realize that there's something about my life that just doesn't fit. And it wasn't about, uh, it wasn't that we met once a week, but it was that he was living his life. And as we grew closer, we could do that for each other. Uh, We're going to look at Mark chapter 2 today. And it's the story where Jesus is preaching in Capernaum. And uh, the paralytic is brought by his friends. And they bring him through the roof. I'm sure you've heard it many times. Uh, What I like about the Gospels is that they speak in stories. And the point of stories in the Bible is not just that we know what happened or we know what Jesus did, but the point of the stories is that they would tell truth. And so when we look at this, I want you to look, what, what are the characters doing? And who are the characters and what are the truths that are portrayed by this story? Uh, three characters in particular. There are a couple more, but three that I want to look at in specific as we go through this. Uh, The paralytic and his friends and the teachers of the law. And we'll see that the the roles that they play and we'll ask ourselves, how does this relate to our lives? Uh, Let me just pray really quick. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for this time, God. Uh, I thank you for your word and the message that you've given to us, God. I pray that you just fill this place. God, speak through me. Uh, speak to me, God. We love you, Lord. Amen. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So we have here the scene is set. And Jesus has returned to Capernaum. He had left to get away from the crowds. And he comes back, and everyone hears that Jesus is back. And when everyone hears, they all come to see, what's this Jesus guy doing? And at this point, we're early in Jesus' ministry, and there's probably not a lot of people who know that Jesus is God. 
And so they're coming just to see, oh, what's all this commotion about? This guy has, has been healing people. This guy has been casting out demons, and they want to find out what's going on. So the place is packed, and you can imagine if this room was packed wall-to-wall, uh, wall, out the door, and there's just tons of people. And I love what Jesus does because he preaches the word to them. And, and it's so cool because once there's people there, he sees that opportunity. I can share the word. I can love people through what's, what I can say. And so, just imagine this room and Jesus preaching, and it's packed. Verse 3, some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get, to him, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Here we have the, the paralytic and his friends. And the thing to remember about the paralytic is that there's nothing he can do at this point. He's paralyzed. We don't see very much action from the paralytic. He doesn't say anything in this story. Uh, and the reason is because he can't do anything. He can't even get to Jesus. Everyone's come to Jesus in this house to hear him, and the paralytic can't get to Jesus. He can't hear Jesus, and so he needs his friends. The other character in this spot are the four friends. And what they would have done in, in those times is the houses uh, would have had flat roofs. And they had stairs that went up the side of the house on the outside so you could, could get to the roof. And they wanted to bring their friend to Jesus. So what they would have done is go up the stairs and start digging through the roof. And the roof would have been made of mud and, and grass and probably some sticks. And they would dig through a hole big enough to fit a man through it. And then lower him down right in front of Jesus. My question about this, in verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. And so we have to look at whose faith did Jesus see? Because while the paralytic is the one who's, it says his sins were forgiven, the faith that we hear about is that of the friends, the four friends. And so why does Jesus see their faith? Why is it so commendable? And what did they gain by showing this faith? Uh, in the Gospels, Faith is always connected to some kind of action. We always hear, whenever we hear that the faith is great or that Jesus sees their faith, there's always some action that comes before that. And here, if we look at the action, what's going on in verse 4, we have these men who go up and they dig through the roof and they lower their paralytic friend down to Jesus. And the thing about their faith is that their faith is not necessarily that's something that's popular with those around. Because number one, they're digging through another guy's roof. I don't think most people would appreciate that. Number two, they're making a mess. So you've got dirt and mud falling down on everyone. Remember, it's a packed house. So this dirt and mud is falling down on everyone. And then number three, it's a packed house, and they're giving this guy a front row seat when everyone else was probably there earlier. Uh, most people probably wouldn't appreciate that. And number four, they all came to hear Jesus preach, and they're interrupting his sermon. And I hear usually that's not a super nice thing to do. And so these men, the actions of their faith, probably aren't very popular with those around. They're not, at this point, probably not very well liked by everyone in this house and everyone outside because they just interrupted God. They interrupted Jesus. But those are the actions of their faith, and that's what's told to us. Um, I have a, a, one of my favorite professors at school. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but 
I do. And uh, his name's Bruce Boulogne, and I think a, a number of you have heard him speak. He came and spoke here a little while ago. And something that, that Bruce Boulogne taught me was that, number one, he taught me actions are there with faith. And number two, he taught me that if you took the word faith in the Gospels and you took it out, and every time that word had appeared, you put in the word risk, every story still makes sense. Because faith is not only connected to actions, but it's connected to some form of risk. And if you look at the risk that these men took, you saw how they're no longer popular with the crowd, but who do they do it for? They do it for our paralytic, who would have been known as a neglected person, who would have been left on the side of the street, probably disowned by his family, and he was a beggar, and he, nobody really liked him. And, and, and so they do this, and they do this in front of everyone, so nobody likes them anymore, and they do it all for a paralytic. And so how much risk do they take by giving up their dignity, by giving up their respect in front of a full house of people, all for a, a lousy paralytic who nobody else cares about? The last question I have about this is, what do they gain by bringing the paralytic in front of Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't say, your faith is great. The four of you, your sins are forgiven. He says, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. How much faith did they have, and what did they gain by it? I was reading E.M. Bounds a little while ago, and E.M. Bounds, he was a, a chaplain for the Confederate Army in the Civil War. And he writes, and he says, how often, how often do we go to our friends on behalf of God? How often do we, we share the gospel with them or say, this is what I believe, this is what I think you should believe too? And how much less often do we go to God on behalf of our friends? How much less often do we pray for them? How much less often do we bring them before God? And the thing is, I think these men here, they bring their friend before God. And they bring him before Jesus and say, I want you to be before Jesus at whatever risk it is to myself. And I will give up so much so that you can be in front of Jesus and that you can be touched by Jesus. The story doesn't end here. Um, it keeps going, and we're going to look at what happens. Verse 6, it says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And whenever we see the teachers of the law in Scripture, we should think uh, the experts, the authorities on the law, people like uh, PhDs, pe uh, biblical scholars, the professors, the theologians, uh, the pastors, and the teachers of the law, uh, their question is, their question is, why does Jesus talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who has authority? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the belief in that time uh, was that only God can forgive our sins. And rumor has it, we still kind of believe that now. And so, the, the thing is, I don't know that they were necessarily wrong when they say, who can forgive sins but God? But they still, they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Because by saying, son, your sins are forgiven, what Jesus is doing is he's claiming an authority that only God has. And so by doing that, he says, I am God. But they don't quite recognize that. The response of Jesus, it says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? 
Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Um, For a long time, uh, I had trouble going to church, especially while I was a, while while I am a student at APU. And for for about two and a half, three years, I had a lot of trouble going to church. Because something that happens with students sometimes, when you start taking Bible classes, and as a biblical studies major, you take a lot of them, is it's easy to become critical of the church. Because you're reading the Bible, and you have so much respect for the Bible and what's in there. And you learn how to read it critically, and you learn how to read it well, and incorporate context and, and all of this and the history of the passage And you think you know what it means. But then you go to church, and nobody can do it quite as well as you do. And so you start becoming critical. And I remember this, what it it would look like on a Sunday morning. You go to church because you feel like you should. And then you walk in, and they're doing worship. And worship's not quite up to par. And so you start thinking to yourself, I don't like the worship style. I don't like the worship leader or the songs that they play or everyone's a little too superficial or they're too fed up with what they look like on stage or something like that. And so automatically within that first 20 minutes, you're already criticizing the church and what's going on. And then you go and, and, and the sermon starts and that's when the bad news happens, right? Because you might not be a worship leader, but you spent the last five days in the week Uh, studying scripture. And so the sermon starts, and the pastor is going, and all of a sudden, the pastor is not good enough for you. And there's not enough cultural context. There's not enough uh, application that really is connected to the Bible. And everything's, everything's off. And all you've thought about this whole time during the service is, how wrong are they, and how right am I? And, and you don't worship, and church doesn't become about worshiping it or, or hearing God. It becomes all about giving this church a grade, and the pastor a grade, and the worship leader a grade. And it becomes about evaluating how they do, and about how right you are, about how wrong they are. And this went on for a long time, uh, a long time in my life. But the problem with what I was doing, and the problem with what a lot of students end up doing, is that it's not that we're necessarily wrong about Scripture or about the church, or about what we think. Because a lot of times we might be right. The problem is not how wrong we are. The problem is that we don't really see God working through the church. And as much as I may have been right about the Bible, or as much as I may have been wrong, it doesn't really matter, because this whole time, all I lost sight of was who God was, and how he was working in that church. Maybe through what was being said correctly, maybe through what was being said incorrectly. Or it doesn't even matter because all that was wrong was that I was missing God. I think this is what's happening with the teachers of the law. Jesus says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he heals the paralytic. So that you know that I am God, Jesus heals the paralytic. The teachers of the law, when they said that Jesus was blaspheming because he claimed the authority 
to forgive sins. They weren't wrong that only God had the authority to forgive sins. They were wrong about who God was and about who Jesus was. And I think when we get so critical about the church and we get so caught up with, I am right, everyone else is wrong, whether we're right or not, we've lost sight of God and how he's working and what he's doing in in the lives of others and in our own lives. The story concludes, and it says, He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. That was a paralytic. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. I love how the story ends, because everyone's just amazed at what Jesus has done. And they praise him, and they say, We have never seen anything like this. Do we recognize what God is doing? Because the crowd did, but the teachers of the law didn't. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. And uh, my last question for you is two things. Number one, who are you in this story? And number two, who do you surround yourself with? I was told growing up many, th- many times, um, be careful who you choose as your friends because you will become those people that you surround yourself with and you will become those who you hang out with. And through my short life, I've come to realize how true that is. Uh, in this story, who are you? Are you the paralytic? And that's not a bad thing if you're the paralytic, if you're at a spot where, where you have no choice but to rely on others. For faith, you, where you can't do anything, you might not even be able to go to God. That's a spot that you may end, but that's not necessarily a bad spot because the paralytic has friends with faith. Or are you those friends? Do you have that faith that could save others? That faith that could have the sins of your friends forgiven? Are you willing to take that risk that these friends took? Are you willing to bring them before God? Or are you the teachers of the law? And have you gotten into a spot where you're so critical about the church and so concerned with being right that you've lost sight of how God is working in your life and in the lives of others? And who do you surround yourself with? Because when you're the paralytic, you might need to surround yourself with those people who have such great faith that they can bring you to God when you can't go to God on your own. And you need those, and I need those people. And we have to make sure that we have those people in our lives because we need others to bring us before God. Or do you surround yourselves with friends? Are you that person that can do that? Do you have those people that can bring you before God? And when you're those friends, do you know who the, those who are paralyzed so that you can bring them before God? Or do you surround yourselves with the teachers of the law? Do you surround yourselves with people who are being critical, who are so, so needing to be right that all of a sudden you fall into that same trend and you fall into that same pit of needing to be right? And so who are you and who do you surround yourself with and what does that look like in your lives?